Hello, and welcome to this download from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is novelist Nadim Aslam, whose two previous books, Maps for Lost Lovers and Season of the Rainbirds, are available from Faber. Nadim's new book, The Wasted Vigil, is set in present-day Afghanistan, in the home of an English doctor, Marcus Caldwell, who lives in an old perfume factory in the shadow of the Tora Bora Mountains. Marcus's story, and those of the other characters whose lives intersect with his, a Russian woman seeking her lost brother, a former CIA man, a young Muslim fundamentalist, allow Aslam to put a human face to the brutal history of modern Afghanistan. I asked Nadim what had drawn him to this subject in the first place. Afghanistan and the tragedy of Afghanistan is linked very tightly to my own life. I was in Pakistan in 1979, the place where I was born. I was there when the Soviets marched into Afghanistan. And it was a big crisis. Soon after the Russians came, the United States government decided that they would use Pakistan and they would use the Afghan resistance, the Mujahideen, to counter the Soviet force. There were any number of writers, journalists, poets and ordinary human beings in Pakistan who warned against the dangers of pouring billions of dollars of worth worth of weapons and, and pouring billions of dollars worth of money into Afghanistan. Because once the Soviets are gone, are gone, what would happen? So things were made difficult for members of my family and that's when we left Pakistan. So Afghanistan is very deeply linked with the fact that I live in London, that I live in England, that, that we came here. People like my father warned against the danger. And when in 1989 the Soviets left, the dangers that people had warned of became uh, apparent, certainly for the Afghanistani people. The civil war began almost immediately. These warlords uh, that I mentioned in my book, they, they began tearing each other to pieces using those very smart, shining weapons which the West and Saudi Arabia had bumped into that area. So... Thousands of people were dying every month. There were hundreds of thousands of war orphans. There were millions of refugees already in Pakistan and Iran. So the consequences were there for the Afghanis immediately. But it took until 2001, September 2001, for the consequences to uh, become apparent for the rest of the world. And in this book, I wanted to explore the question, is it possible for a superpower to go into another land and play its geopolitical game, use another poor country as a proxy, and then withdraw and expect there not to be any consequences? So when I look at my notebooks, I can actually trace the... Uh, destruction of Afghanistan, the the emergence of Taliban, the 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 appearance of Al-Qaeda, the, the very first statements that uh, Osama bin Laden put out from Kandahar, the very first um, terrorist attacks which were carried out on Western targets. From the start, you said you knew that you wanted to write about American foreign policy conducted through proxies. W- was it the case that you knew that 
the main main characters of the book would be Western. In a sense, you bring together, I suppose, a microcosm of mm. Afghanistan's recent past because you've got an English doctor who's got a, a deceased Afghan wife. You've got an American who's been involved in the CIA. You've got the Russian sister of uh, a, of a fighter, who a Soviet fighter. And then you bring in two other uh, main characters, a, a, a Muslim, fen- an Afghan fundamentalist and a, a young woman who's a teacher. So I wondered how that how that microcosm kind of took shape that, that, that forms a sort of imaginative core of the book. Afghanistan, as I say at some point in the novel early on, is that has always been a crossroads of history. So that was where in 1979 and in the 80s and then in the 90s, these various nations came together. And uh, as Marcus says at one point, everyone made mistakes in this place. So I just wanted to explore those countries' involvements uh, as to whether it was hard or not trying to imagine a 42-year-old Russian woman or a man or an American man in his late 50s. I am not those things. But this is what writers do. You imagine yourselves into the skin of someone else. So how did I begin imagining someone like David or someone like Marcus, I always think that if you blindfolded me and you blindfolded a Spanish person or a Russian person and you fed both of us strawberries, we would know that they were strawberries. So there are certain basic things which we all, every single one of us on the planet has in common. The way we fall in love, what it means when we say mother, the feeling that 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 is generated inside you by that word, and the feeling that is generated inside you by the word son, by the word child, the word flower, butterfly. So based some things are true. Beyond that, there are social, political, economic circumstances into which each one of us is dropped at oh. birth. But they can be learned. Oh. They can you can go and find out about Russian history. One, one approaches these things from a position of great humbleness. And of course, you, you can make mistakes. But I think if you try to do these, but if you're trying to do these things honestly, with a certain amount of, well, not, not a certain amount, but as much integrity as you can, as you can muster, then, then there is honor in that failure. You mentioned the things that we all have in common, the taste of a strawberry and the experience of love. And then the things which are which are overlaid, which are learnt, which are cultural, which are not intrinsic. And in the book, toward, towards the end of the book, Lara says to David, we are most alone when we are with the myths. Yes. And it seemed to me that that was a very telling remark that shed a lot of light on many things in the book, because there are characters who have lived by communist myths or American capitalist expansionist myths or... Islamic fundamentalist myths. A lot, a lot of the the tensions in the book come from from those conflicting. They they may be big systems, or they may be individuals' own personal worldviews, or their distortions of a of a of a system. Mm. And that that seemed to me to be a a, a source of the action and the the, the tensions in the, in the book. Yes, that is the idea. And uh, of course, um, myths that we take in or myths that are given to us by the culture that we live in. Myths, politics, and uh, what have you. There are some parts of the planet where 
you can live an honorable, perhaps even a decent life, if you don't, if you choose that you you do not wish to pay any attention to the politics of that country, it is possible to to ignore it and live a full life. I mean, and I'm talking about the West here, you know. The, but in countries like Pakistan, in countries like Afghanistan, and the majority of the third world, politics is a physical thing. It is not boring old words. I was teaching in Washington, D.C. earlier in the year. And I would go for walks around the Capitol building and or around the White House. And I would think how decisions made in that place back in the 80s, how those decisions which the American people were not very much aware of or if they were aware of they they did not impinge on them that greatly but those those boring words traveled halfway across the world to pakistan and there they became hammers and fists which broke the bodies of journalists and uh, writers and poets who were protesting against the regime which was being supported by america and the west so and saudi arabia so you know, for for some of us, we don't have the luxury to be able to turn our eye away from politics. You could have made a documentary, you could have made a, a, a work of reportage, but writing a novel about this allows you to get into the heads of characters whose heads it's otherwise very difficult to, to get into. The book is called The Wasted Vigil, and the word vigil or its derivatives, vigilant or vigilante, occurs seven times in the novel. And each time it is linked to one of the main characters. For example, with Gasa, Gasa says that when he arrives at the house and he sees that the house is full of unbelievers, they are, they are not Muslims, even though Marcus has converted to Islam, but he's still wary of him because it's an Englishman. So he says that he should be vigilant against these people in case they infect him with their disbelief, with their unfaith, as it were. But the moment he enters the house and sits down and has a cup of tea and he's around in the kitchen where the walls are painted with images and after he finishes that cup and he leaves, the way he looks at the world is now different. The language in which I describe what he sees is slightly richer than it was before because he's been around art. Mm. Infection has happened. Mm. His vigil has been wasted. As it were, it doesn't matter how how hard he tries. In the same way, there's a special forces soldier in the novel, James Ballantyne. He uses the word that we have to be vigilant against these people. But of course, tragedy happens at the end for him as well. So, um, yes, um, it was wonderful to uh, um, bring all these people together and and to see how long it would take for them to move away from the common humanity, yes. as it were, and then for the layer upon layer of the um, myths and histories that also are what we are, um, that also go mm. to make what we are, mm. uh, how long it would take for them to surface. Mm. You, you, just, you compare Marcus to Prospero, and it seemed to me that wasn't a casual comparison. In some ways, Prospero's cell, where there are these encounters and people 
shipwrecked uh, metaphorically. Um, well, how, to what extent was that in the back of your mind as, as something as you were oh, writing? Absolutely, I was. Um, I was thinking of uh, Prospero, and uh, I was thinking of Shakespeare a lot, um, all the way through through the novel. In the um, at the end, when we have the Roger sequence, I was thinking of the blinding of Gloucester in King Lear. In that, you could make a case where you could say that his conduct had been that of a traitor in that England was under attack by France and he had sided with the the French. So you could say that the sisters were right in thinking that he needs to be punished for being a traitor. But the, but the punishment that, that he's blinded is so inappropriate and so horrific that we immediately lose sympathy with the the people who are punishing him. Even if they are right in thinking that he needs to be punished. But the punishment is so bizarre and so art, so so cruel and barbaric that you think, no, you want to step away from it. So that is, and that I was thinking of not only in terms of how I make Gaza up, who of course is a suicide bomber um, who is waiting to carry out a suicide mission, and also to the American presence in Afghanistan. So it doesn't matter what the West did to the Islamic lands. It doesn't matter how America treated the Muslims. Flying those planes into those office buildings is so horrific and barbaric that we think we are not with you. I don't care. Mm. Even if America was in the wrong. I don't care. And Secondly, when you look at what's happening in Guantanamo Bay and the, the footage in, in Abu Ghraib and, and what have you, again, you think, I don't care that your country was attacked and you went back and said, we need to make sure that this kind of thing that doesn't happen again, or we want revenge or whatever. I don't care how right you think you were, because this is wrong. I'm not with you. So that was the idea in the novel, yes. And and barbarism begets barbarism, doesn't it? The, the, it every community is perpetrating acts of barbarism mm. on on others. And yeah. how did you how did you deal with that? Because it is is such a such a presence in the novel. I mean, the novel has got many things of beauty, and it's also got terrible scenes of yes. violence. Yes, people keep coming up to me and saying that the book was at times so horrible that they had to put it down and walk away. And then they also say the book was so beautiful that they had to put it down and just think about what I had just written. So you could say that why are barbaric things written about, being written about in this book in a beautiful manner? Why so much horror and uh, terror and uh, fear being described right next to a page which is full of ravishingly beautiful things. Well, why do we take flowers to a grave? It is a reminder. It is a way of reminding the dead that we are celebrating their presence by looking at the beautiful things in life. You know, they are not there because, and we mourn the fact that they are not there because they are not able to look at the color of a flower petal. So I wanted to juxtapose both these things. Uh, I don't think it's being disrespectful to, to the dead at all. 
to describe their tragedy and then celebrate the beauty and pleasures of life because of course as i said that is what we want them to be here and enjoy as mm-hmm. it were you know these things have to be highlighted as well so why um, to tell um, about these these horrible things well these things happened mm-hmm. I suppose no. you've got to decide as a novelist to what extent you go what no, I, what what is I, I, what is no yes I totally agree that there has to be a balance of course it's a, and I think I got the balance right the book was uh, has been through four drafts so I think there is just the right amount and why are those horrible things there because they happened and the afghanistani people ha- haven't been swinging from hammocks strung between mulberry trees for the past 30 years horrible things happened and i think it is my duty to uh, to catalog them to keep a quiet log of them i would quote tony morrison who said that if they can live it i can write it and i would go one step further and say that if they can live it you can read it mm. and i don't mean that fixation on the dark things of life just for the hell of it the great the very great and very brilliant comic mccarthy gave an interview earlier this year to rolling stone magazine in which he said at one point that the world was worse than it used to be because who would have thought 50 years ago that we would have beheadings on tv well every man must learn to argue with his heroes at some point and i don't agree with comic mccarthy 50 years ago we didn't have beheadings on tv but we had them if something horrible is going on in the world i want to know about it so i can get angry about it i can get sad about it i can become galvanized by it to try to put an end to it that is much better than not knowing about it and then going around thinking don't i live in a wonderful world there was a time for innocence and that was childhood i don't see innocence as a virtue which has to be extended indefinitely when i was a child i was given a space i was given time to be innocent and to be a child by the adults around me who were shielding me from the horrors of life now i am an adult i have children in my life my own children my nephews your children the children of my of our listeners here and it is my duty and your duty and everyone of every other adult's duty to stand in a circle around those children so that they can be innocent mm. they can have the time that i did and of course the children in the book many of them didn't didn't have any period of innocence they were they had a brutal that is the introduction lament. to the that is adult the world that is the lament that is so at one point uh, um, marcus says that um, stories are how we judge our actions before we carry them out so here we were in 1979 america decided that it would go into afghanistan and try to play play its geopolitical game as i said earlier not knowing anything about the forces that would be unleashed and here we are now 2025 to 26 years later america is now in iraq did the american regime they did the american government know did those people know what would be unleashed once they were in there you know so that is why we tell these stories so that uh, you know i mean it's too late for iraq but <laughs> you know perhaps in the future
we will think uh, twice. I was talking to Nadim Aslam about the Wasted Vigil, which is available now. If you've enjoyed this programme, you'll find lots more author interviews and readings on the Faber website. There's also a regular podcast, which you can subscribe to on iTunes. For the moment, thank you for listening, and goodbye.